Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a conversation with Jill Abramson, the former executive editor of The New York Times. Jill has a new book out about the media called Merchants of Truth, the Business of News and the Fight for Facts that's received a lot of attention, stirred up a lot of controversy already, which I guess is good for book sales. Uh, I'm very happy to have Jill join us. Jill, um, the subtitle of the book is The Fight for Facts, The Business of News and the Fight for Facts. Are the facts winning? Thanks for having me, Kyle. I think the facts will always win. They have to because democracy depends on citizens having reliable information and quality news to help them make, you know, important decisions about issues, the economy, the environment, you name it. So they have to win, and I think they will win. I've been a pretty close observer to all the companies that you write about in in your book, um, which are the Washington Post, the New York Times, BuzzFeed, and Vice. And um, yeah, it's to your great credit. I I, I learned a ton here. Um, Oh, and I thought the um, um, I thought just the evolution. I mean, we we forget sort of, especially with BuzzFeed and Vice, what these brands, what these companies started as, which is not news companies at all. Um, right. And um, and then to sort of there was just this kind of which like I hope I don't convey as you know anything like a put down or saying that they don't have the the qualifications now to do news but it's fascinating that they began really what supported the content that they made which was not news was you know they were both basically operating also as ad agencies you write a lot um in this book about the culture and the kind of mechanisms for um, for high levels of journalism, um, um, especially at the Post and the Times, and how how the these other two companies it took a long time for those to sort of uh, integrate themselves into the cultures of Vice and BuzzFeed. Um, do you do you think where where let's let's talk about BuzzFeed especially and about this recent story of theirs? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that that's a an example of how um, that that sort of true um, embrace of of rigor and fact checking and whatever still isn't quite there for them? Well, I mean, I think it's premature to come to a judgment on their story. Uh, I've talked uh, and interviewed to some of the journalists who were involved in the Michael Cohen Trump story that Mueller knocked down. Because Jason Leopold was at Vice when you were doing some of the reporting. Yeah, he was. I interviewed him there. but. But he's been other places, too, and he was, his name, as was Heidi Blake, she's the global investigations editor for BuzzFeed. They were both on a a fantastic story about mysterious murders in London where they were able to prove Russia was behind those killings. Uh, Was a finalist for a Pulitzer, you know, last, last. Last time around, so 
you know, they, Heidi, you know, worked for the Sunday Times of London. Uh, you know, their their investigative unit, which was built by Mark Schutz, a Pulitzer winner himself, uh, it only started in 2014. It now has, you know, 20 investigative journalists. Uh, we should, you know, celebrate that at a time when so many newspapers, especially local and regional ones, don't do any investigative reporting. But I don't think these reporters are, or, you know, on the story, are inexperienced. And they didn't rush uh, to publish. They had worked on this particular story for more than two months. Uh, they led, uh, they, they've been an investigative uh, partnership, uh, Jason Leopold and Anthony Cormier, you know, for a very long time. And they've led on the story about the negotiations for a Trump Tower in Moscow, which, you know, may turn out to be, you know, the smarmiest uh, arm of the Mueller probe. So, you know, I'm, I, I think there's been somewhat of a rush to, you know, make this a case study in bad journalistic practice. And I'm not not sure, you know, it is. I'm obviously not sure either that the story is solid. Uh, they, you know, BuzzFeed was transparent that it had two sources involved in the investigation of Trump Tower Moscow. Uh, you know, they had documents described to them. Uh, you know, I don't know if their story was wrong or if there's a major flaw in it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, the special counsel said, you know, poured ice water on it, not not only cold water, which is, you know, practically unprecedented. And, you know, it, it, I just don't, you know, I, I think there are, you know, other currents at work here. I think what, what the story is, I, I hope I'm not being long-winded, is an example of uh, how news goes viral, which mm. is the process that Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed, is the the biggest expert in and a master of. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, we're sort of all living in Jonah Peretti's world now. Um, yeah, and that can be cautionary, you know, certainly if something is false and goes viral. But, you know, it can be great, too, because it can bring a huge audience to a particular story that should get more attention. But but there is a sort of predictable um, cycle to this, which is somebody writes a ex potentially explosive story, um, the there a certain group of sort of uh, pundits and, you know, uh, frankly, cable TV hosts jumps on it and says, this is huge, this is going to change right. the world. Right, became, uh, you know, cliche for, for this story. Right. And then, and then what happens is that happens super quick, and then, and then there's this sort of now, I think, a fairly predictable backlash. That, and some of it comes from the right, but, th but then there's, there's questions that are raised and people start. And then the pendulum sort of swings all the way to the other side, which is like, 
this thing is totally BS. This is a disaster. Head should roll. And then it sort of at some point sort of settles in in the middle. But it's that or worse is forgotten and overtaken by some other controversy. Right. It just doesn't seem like a healthy way to sort of digest and talk about news. No, it isn't. And certainly the the speed of the news cycle and the expectation of people that they're going to know what happened the instant it happens mm. uh, has, has changed journalism and the publishing process profoundly uh, in some good and important ways. And you know, some tro- very troubling ways, which you just described. Uh, but, you know, thing, when I started my career as an investigative reporter, you know, at the Wall Street Journal in the relative Stone Age, you know, we, we our, our culture and our rhythms were completely governed by the printing press. Mm-hmm. You know, you print... You finish your story, you know, a couple of hours before 8 or 9 p.m., and there was only one version of it, right. uh, maybe a follow story the next day. But, you know, it's all hyperspeed. It's all in hyperspeed now. Wow. We talked about how the news cycle works. Um, I mean, I, I was fascinated to see that play out in response to the book itself. Um, where you had, you know, this book's out, then it was, you got sort of like... The book gra- isn't out. Well, right. The the, the galleys... There were uncorrected galleys right. that had been distributed, were you su- uh, not to a lot of people. Right. Were you surprised by by that that cycle that sort of played out on your own work? Or did, I wasn't surprised uh-huh. by it. Uh-huh. Um, by both the, because what happened is for the, the for everybody who had been oh, following sorry. this closely, so Howie Kurtz at Fox wrote a piece that I think, having read the book, mischaracterized your take on the Times, but it was a Fox story about how you were um, dissing the Times, and then, and then I'll, no, it was saying that I was saying the Times was biased right. against Trump, right, and that was that's the way he framed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were factual errors in the galley, which you since corrected, yes? Yes. Right. So, but you weren't surprised on, on, on either of those fronts that this happened? I wasn't, but I don't really want to talk in detail about why. Mm. I mean, I was well aware that um, some of the people I wrote about were angry about the mm-hmm. book. Right. And had contested, you know, some of the facts in the book. I actually so thought... So I wasn't surprised. Everything happens instantly. Uh, I was surprised that the galley had been out there, you know, for way over a month, that it took that long. <laughs> <laughs> you were I sort of was. hoping for some attention. Yeah, like, <laughs> whatever. But, you know, I, I want to say seriously that, you know... It pains me uh, that there uh, were any mistakes. And, you know, in a 500-page 
book, I fear it's inevitable that there are going to be some. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing you can do as a good journalist is is correct them ASAP. I read that you you did hire a fact checker for the book? I did. Uh, How much sort of fact checking did the publisher do, or did did they leave that all to your person? No, the publishers, I think, by and large, don't fact check anymore. They copy it up. I mean, I almost think the publishers have taken on the—I mean, they've almost taken the stance of, like, uh, Facebook, which is, we're a platform. We're not—right. We put stuff out there. um, We're not making a claim for uh, whether it's true or not. I mean, when Jane Mayer and I wrote our book, Strange Justice, about Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, I'm pretty sure the publisher paid for a fact checker. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so I may be uh, wrong on that, but <laughs> I thought that the the stuff that I found most interesting about your time at the Times was I, I was the sort of continuing ongoing tension around um, around the business side's effort to sort of find. I mean, they were desperate to find other sources of revenue because right. the paper was in trouble, and they sort of saw news as a potential uh, area to, you know, frankly, the way I read it, I don't know if you intended it to be this way, sort of exploit, like how can we sort of take money from news in a way that that would work for both them and us? What what I was trying to write about is there, I had grown up in a newspaper culture where there was, you know, extremely... bright line between uh, the newsroom and the business side of the times. And um, in a digital world, uh, which, you know, existed from the moment I joined the times, like I could see, you know, the executive editor uh, really emphasizing the importance of the independence of the newsroom. And what I experienced is that uh, the business leaders of the times wanted less of a separation and believed that the journalists had to be, journalists in the newsroom had to be heavily involved, if not the prime uh, designers of a digital strategy that would ensure the time's future. Right. And that, you know, worried me. I did not want the journalists in the newsroom to be preoccupied with revenue-producing proposals. It sounded to me like a sort of a constant battle. I mean, with between... It wasn't a constant battle, but there were battles and I write about them. You write about them and, 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 I mean, you... It became like just revenue production and coming up with new products and a new business strategy certainly took up uh, 
way the majority of my time, my personal time as executive editor. And, you know, when I was managing editor for eight years under Bill Keller, I saw it become, you know, over time a dominant part of of his life and and thoughts too. I think that this this note this chapter and this this battle was sort of undercovered at the time. I don't think those of us on the outside appreciated what was going on inside. Well that's probably true, but um what was happening inside the times wasn't any different from what was happening elsewhere yeah, right. in the news media and especially um, at places like BuzzFeed and Vice, which had been founded on Native ads, which, you know, I had given speeches saying, like, how terrible I thought brand advertising and Native advertising were, because it's the same, same thing, basically, that I thought it could sow confusion in readers' minds yeah. as to... What, what was a story and what was an ad. I heard you recently at a kickoff breakfast for your book, you know, somebody asked you whether, what, you know, whether you were bitter or whether you, whatever. And, and you basically were, were like, no, you're not. You, you're, you've got, you've, that chapter is behind you in terms of whatever, you know, that transpired to end up with you getting fired. Um, and that, you know, you're still rooting for the time. So you've, you, you have, forgiveness in your heart (laughs) i do i have um how how can you not forgive people like dean becket who has turned out to be you know a great executive editor and uh you know a a steady guide of the times through you know this period of constant uh, White House attacks, uh, or you know Arthur Sulzberger Jr., who was publisher when I was executive editor and was the man who fired me. But you know he he is, I think, you know one of the great heroes of journalism because in the worst of times, sure we had some job reductions in the newsroom, but not of the, you know, severity of our competitors. Uh, And he was really careful to preserve the quality of the news report. We did not cut back on foreign reporting. Mm -hmm. We did more investigative reporting than ever. And, you know, he never really got much credit for that. Although uh, I, I got to say, I, I hear what you're saying now, although reading reading the book on a kind of a page-by-page level, I thought the portrayal of Sulzberger was pretty unflattering. Okay. Well, you know, I read. think it's mixed, but the portraits of many key characters in mm. the book is mixed. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one more area, which is this the new moment we're in, especially at these two big papers that you write about where you have such a surge of subscription. You know, I think it's early. You know, it, it's not like this is an alarm bell that we have to say, oh, no, we got to cut off this reader revenue because they're meddling. But you do see examples where they where, where readers get very vocal and very 
uh, you know, strident against, especially on on the op-ed pages against certain, you know, against at the times right-wing voices, which they just have no tolerance for. Does this worry you going forward at all? Is there a reason to be concerned about this? I mean, Mark Thompson has announced that by 2020, he wants 8 million di- digital subscribers. Mm-hmm. So it would seem hard for any one reader to have a whole lot of influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the days, which are not that long ago, that advertising produced uh, the majority of the revenue for the times would seem, you know, more vulnerable to, you know, powerful interests trying to exert pressure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I did not even see that at work uh, when I was an editor at the Times. I mean, I certainly dealt with a lot of subjects of stories, some of whom were advertisers who were very angry about mm. what particular news stories said about them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, never, ever, you know, would the Times be influenced by that. I think it's, again, it's early days. And, and let's also just acknowledge that it's a luxury problem in a way, but that you know, most newspapers... Uh, or websites in the country, right. they don't have an option of worrying about this because they're not getting the reader revenue anyway. Right, because their news is not of a quality that people would pay for. Right. Uh, yeah. Jill, thanks a lot. It was great to talk oh, to you. Oh, thanks so much for your interest, Kyle. So that's it for this week of The Kicker. Um, I will have a Q&A that will be pulled from this conversation that will appear on our website at cjr.org. So the sort of highlights of this conversation if you want to take a look at that Um, and a lot of other great um, stories about what's going on in the media including a lot of the stuff that Jill and I talked about are on CJR at all times and on our social and our new um, reader engagement app called Galley which you should check out thanks for listening Uh, see you next week